Howdy friends, this is Matt Sewell, and you're listening to episode 43 of the Popecast, the only podcast about popes for people who love history and a good story, but have neither the time nor the interest to pick up dry, dusty history books. Once again, we extend a hearty thank you to our sponsors over at Catholic Balm Co. Barbers are slowly reopening around the country. I know I finally got a haircut, thanks be to God. But odds are there's someone in your life, maybe it's you, who's looking more and more like a pre-Renaissance pope with an unruly beard in need of some grooming. So check out all the great handmade products they have over at catholicbalm.co and order some for you and a friend. That's catholicbalm.co. And then be sure to enter the word pope at checkout. Fans of the Popecast get 10% off their entire order with that promo code. So once again, that's catholicbalm.co, catholicbalm.co and the word pope at checkout. Thanks again to Catholic Balm Co. for sponsoring the Popecast. Today, we have a pope who condemned a predecessor who had dug up a dead pope and put his body on trial. No big deal. He also reigned longer than most of his immediate predecessors and successors, but was still only in office for two years. Times were tough in the late 9th century. This week on the Popecast, it's the 115th successor of St. Peter, the Pope who said putting a corpse on trial is bad, Pope John IX. The Catholic Church in the late 800s and early 900s was a shady place, not to mention the city of Rome itself. Rome around that time had shrunk down to barely 50,000 or so inhabitants, a far cry from the one and a half million it saw during the peak of the Roman Empire. Morale was low, to say the least. One can imagine that disease and plunder were rampant and petty tyrants of the Tusculani family ran the city. In fact, just a few years after the death of John IX, who we're talking about today, began the 60-year period known as the Pornocracy, or Seculum Obscurum, Latin for the Dark Age of the Papacy. As if that wasn't enough, when John IX ascended to the papacy in 898, he inherited a church whose pope just one year prior had dug up the corpse of his predecessor and put it on trial. It's one of the most famous instances from papal history, but for those unfamiliar, I'm referring, of course, to the Synodus Horrenda, more commonly known to us as the Cadaver Synod of 897, where Pope Stephen VI, acting as a puppet of the angry emperor, exhumed the body of his predecessor, Pope Formosus, and held a sham trial, after which he was, of course, condemned, posthumously deposed, his acts and ordinations as Pope annulled and stripped of the papal vestments. Oh, and the thumb, index, and middle fingers on his right hand were cut off, and his body was thrown in the Tiber River. So things were great. We know little of John IX prior to his election as Pope, mainly due to the depressed state of affairs in Rome at the time. Life was hard enough to live, let alone to record early histories of Pope's lives, right? But what we do know is that John was a native of Tivoli, a town about 18 miles east of Rome, and that he entered the Benedictine monastic order and was ordained a priest by Pope Formosus himself sometime in his earlier adult life. Aside from that, we don't even know the exact dates of his election and death, other than, other than them being in 898 and 900, respectively. We do know, however, that his election itself was a salty affair. The future Pope Sergius III, who would, among other things, father a child that would later become Pope himself with the Roman ruler, Marugia, was trying to take the papacy by force in opposition to John's candidacy. Thankfully, however, Sergius was held at bay, apparently by one of the dukes of the region, a powerful local prince, and eventually was kicked out of the city and excommunicated for the time being. 
Soon after being elected, and presumably with the scab of the cadaver synod still fresh for both sides, John IX revived the cause of Formosus, specifically saying that clearly it was pretty nasty to dig him up and put his corpse on trial, but also that it was out of line for Stephen to say that all of his acts and ordinations of priests and bishops was complete, were completely bogus. For a bit of context, what was peeving the Roman people about Formosus dated back about a decade prior to the papacy of the previous John, John VIII who had more or less turned on Formosus and leveled a handful of charges against him, including being bishop of more than one see, which was a no-no in those days, against, uh, according to canon law, uh, and also of aspiring to be pope himself, both of which were likely dubious claims, you know, chalked up to John's jealousy for Formosus's apparent favor among the people whom he had evangelized throughout the Bulgar kingdom. But in any case, Formosus had been excommunicated when he was still a bishop, and as a result, it was those charges that Stephen used as an excuse to carry out his macabre spectacle. At any rate, John, who was considered to be both intelligent and of moderate disposition, a rare combination in those times, rightly pointed those out as completely ridiculous once he was in office, and not only reinstated all of Formosus's actions as pope, but had his body reinterred in St. Peter's Basilica, where it remains to this day. This understandably angered the majority of the Romans who still favored Stephen's actions, so John was forced to flee the city for a time, taking up residence at Ravenna instead. He held a handful of meetings of bishops to condemn the whole Formosan affair, including one with the approval of and alliance with the very emperor who had orchestrated the whole thing, Lambert of Spoleto. At the same synod of bishops, John also sought two other things— One, to cement some changes to the elections of popes, still noting that the Roman clergy held the sole right to elect a future pope, but requiring it to be done in the presence of Roman leaders and imperial ambassadors in hopes that it would prevent meddling and intimidation in elections that was so common in those days. We know now that uh, 60, 70 years following, that didn't work out too well. Secondly was a plea by John to cease the violence that had continued to erupt amongst the Roman factions the pro- and anti-Formosan parties. In all things, it would seem that John acted with prudence and charity. The agreement and alliance with Lambert seemed to indicate that things in Italy might be getting a little bit better, especially after he defeated Berengar, one of the petty kings in Italy who had been thwarted by popes for the better part of a decade, and who tried to usurp Lambert in early October 898. But Lambert suddenly died, just days after beating Berengar and locking him up in prison. In nearly no time at all, following Lambert's death, with the emperor dead, Berengar negotiated his escape and claimed the throne as not just king of Italy, but in his mind as emperor as well. Trouble was, the Hungarian army, known also as the Magyars, began to attack Western Europe for the first time the following year in 899. Historians speculate whether the Magyars were sent as a foil to Berengar by his enemy, the Frankish king Arnulf, the most likely scenario, or if they were even welcomed by Berengar himself as allies. But whatever the case, the Magyars attacked and routed Berengar's army in September of 899, bringing his ability to protect Italy into question, and causing the nobility to bring up another candidate as emperor, Louis of Provence. As far as how this affected our Pope John IX, one can only imagine he wasn't complaining when he was called to his eternal reward before all of this was settled. Louis and Berengar would trade blows for the better part of the next two years. Berengar was recognized by John as at least the king of Italy, but Louis would end up getting crowned emperor by John's successor, Benedict IV, in 901. We haven't heard the last of these two warring kings on the Pope cast, so we'll leave that be for the moment. 
I tell this portion of the story to give a small window in, into what the life of a pope at that time must have been like, especially the life of a pope who, as far as we can tell, sought to be at least a better example than any who were wandering around Rome in those days. Almost 600 years after John's reign, a Vatican librarian, Bartolomeo Platina, wrote a history of the papacy from Peter to Gregory VII. And in talking about this particular time period in question, he had a particularly salty take. In talking about all the drama with Formosus, Stephen VI, and other petty popes of the age, Platina writes, quote, These popes, by their constant inobservance of all apostolic practices, were the occasions, in my opinion, of these turmoils especially joining with that the cowardice and negligence of the princes of Christendom, whose interest it was that the ship of St. Peter should labor with tempests, that so the master, being unable to speak out against them, might throw them like naughty mariners overboard. End quote. And in reference to the spat between Louis and Berengar, the fall of the Carolingian Empire itself, and of the general state of the papacy in the years prior and decades to come, Platina writes, quote, The empire which had arrived to so great a height, lost its splendor by the sluggishness of the great men and people of Rome when they once grew remiss in the exercises of virtue and emasculated their bodies with luxury and with studied softness. And this, we may say, was the case of the papacy. For at first, the pontifical dignity, without wealth and among enemies and furious persecutors of Christianity, was illustrious with a holiness and learning not to be attained without great pains and a consummate virtue. But now, the church of God was grown wanton with its riches, and the clergy quitted severity of manners for lasciviousness, so that there being no prince to punish their excesses, such a licentiousness of sinning obtained in the world as brought forth these monsters, these prodigies of wickedness, by whom the chair of St. Peter was rather seized than rightfully possessed. Yet this may be said for John the Ninth and his successor Benedict IV, that in this debauched age, they carried themselves with gravity and constancy. End quote. John the Ninth died, according to Platina, after being pope for just two years and 15 days. He may not be a saint, but it would seem that he nevertheless chose to seek after virtue, to be charitable in all things, and to overall rise above the spirit of the world in what was a particularly tumultuous time in history. And perhaps that's a takeaway for us, as our own world becomes increasingly more divided. Well, that's it for this edition of the Popecast, a bit shorter today, especially given that our previous three episodes were a series on uh, Pope St. Saint- John Paul II, so be sure to have a listen to those if you haven't yet. And thanks in general for listening, uh, especially to any new listeners of the podcast that may be out there. We're glad to have you. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast over at iTunes. Give us a follow and share on social media in case there are other armchair papal history nerds like you and I out there who might enjoy the podcast. Also, whether you're a new or returning listener of the podcast, please consider joining us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thepopecast. There's some great benefits for patrons, and it ensures we can continue producing the podcast now and into the future. So once again, that's patreon.com slash thepopecast. And then lastly, of course, in between new episodes, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all at thepopecast for daily pope quotes and old uh, photos from papal history. So as we close this episode... We pray for the soul of Pope John IX, and we ask for the grace to live lives of virtue and charity amidst an ever more decadent and divided world. Until next time. 